sung and danced a song called The Farmer and the Cowman Should Be Friends. To this day, I don't know what that song is about, but I sang it in high school. So, anyway, you know, in a musical, right, uh, I just want you to imagine if your life was a musical, imagine, like, right, Mom, you're sitting there getting dinner ready in the kitchen, and, uh, and Dad, you've just walked in the door, and Junior's there finishing up homework, and then all of a sudden you just burst into song, right? Um, it's, a little, it's a little weird. It's why uh, musicals kind of seem cheesy to us, but you realize that the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, these first two chapters that we're looking at these months, are actually a lot like a musical. Uh, the storyline is just kind of moving along, and then all of a sudden, somebody bursts into song. And the same things that cause somebody to burst into song in a regular musical are the same things that happen in the biblical narrative. What happens is, right, some, some deep-seated emotion is being expressed. In this case, it's usually joy. So for the, for the month of December... We are looking at these four songs that surround the birth of Jesus, right? Last week, we looked at Mary's song, and we're calling these hymns of hope, uh, because you have these four songs that structure the very first two chapters of Luke. Luke is one of the only gospel writers that gives us the birth story of Jesus, tells us anything about uh, his, his birth story. And so you have these four songs that make up the early part of Luke's gospel, uh, and the first song we looked at last week was Mary's song. And in Mary's song, what, what overjoys Mary, if you remember, uh, if you were here last week, is that when God breaks into history, he, he flips the script, as we say, right? Um, the way that we look at things in the world, the way that our culture usually looks at things, is that the, the people who matter are the people who have power, are the people who have wealth and the people who have strength. But what Mary is overjoyed by, because Mary is a, is, a, is a nobody, from a no place, right? Mary is just this humble servant girl. She probably didn't have, not, not a servant girl, but she didn't have any means. She didn't have any wealth. And she was from Nazareth, like the, like the, the, the corner of the Roman Empire far away. So Mary's not anybody special from any place special. But because of his mercy, God chooses her to carry the Savior of the world in her womb. And so when Mary sings, she rejoices over the fact that God does not esteem people the way that we esteem people. He does not look on the mighty and the proud and give them kudos. No, he actually topples them off of the throne and he exalts the humble. God God fights for his people. Those who fear him is the way that Mary puts it. That's Mary's song. And in Mary's song, we see that God is might and God is mercy. But today, we're going to talk about another person, another song, uh, this time from an old man. Last week, we had a song from a young virgin. Uh, this week, we have a song from an old priest named Zechariah. Now, you may not be all that familiar with Zechariah because he's not usually one of the Christmas heroes, Right? When you drive by a nativity scene or, um, you know, if you're, you're familiar with the Christmas story, you're familiar with probably the heroes of Christmas. We got Mary, we got Joseph, we got shepherds, we got wise men, and of course, the baby Jesus. But we don't really talk about Zechariah much. And so you'll be interested to know that Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth, and their baby, John, actually are the first people that Luke tells us about. They are the first 
heroes of the story, so to speak, that Luke introduces us to when it comes to the birth of Jesus. John comes before Jesus, and today we're going to hear Zechariah's song. But before we do, we need to learn a little bit more about where that song comes from. So if you will, join me in Luke's gospel. Uh, If you have a Bible, uh, turn to Luke chapter 1. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one off of the rack in front of you. We're going to actually be uh, kind of jumping around here at the beginning, but page 855 is where we'll start. We'll spend most of our time in, on page 856, uh, Luke 1, 67 through 79 is where we'll spend most of our time. That's where the song is. But we need a little bit of backstory. Who exactly are Zechariah and Elizabeth? And so before we read, let's pray together and ask for God's help. Father, as we turn to your word, we pray that you would open it up to us, that these would not merely be words on a page, but that they would be words that fill our hearts and transform us. That you would draw us out of yourselves. That you would make us new creatures. God, we pray that you would help us to understand the words that you have spoken here. And that everything else that doesn't come from you would be blown away, but that your words would find root in our hearts. That we would take root there and that they would grow up Uh, and transform us. We ask it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So Luke is a a historian. If you uh, you like PBS documentaries, Ken Burns, like Luke, Luke is the Ken Burns of the Bible, okay? He's a historian, he's telling a story, and he's really good at what he does. So look at Luke chapter 1, verse 5. Luke tells us right where we are in history. He says, In the days of Herod... King of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years which is a very politically correct saying, a way of saying they were old, right? Um, Now, so the definition that Luke gives us of this couple is probably the way that we would say they they were good people, right? He mentions that they were blameless, and that doesn't mean that they were morally perfect. It doesn't mean they never sinned. It doesn't mean they never did anything wrong. What it means is that they love the Lord, And they did their best to follow his commandments. And the reason that Luke mentions that is because in their day, to not have children would be be considered a curse. People would have looked at the fact that Elizabeth was unable to have children, or this couple was unable to have children, and they would have said, God is mad at them. And so Luke tells us that that is not the case. These are, quote-unquote, good people. God is not mad with them. She is simply barren and they are simply old. That's the setup. That's the situation. Let's see what happens next. While Zechariah, this is verse 8, now while Zechariah was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Basically, they drew straws and 
Zechariah's straw got pulled. And so now Zechariah has this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go into the sanctuary, to go into the temple, and to burn incense. This is not something that everybody got to do every day. Zechariah, this, is a, this would have been probably the first time in his life and probably the last that Zechariah would have had opportunity to enter the temple and um, assist people in worship in this way. He's the one who's burning incense at the altar. Verse 11. There appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. That would probably happen to me as well. But the angel said to him, Don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will call his name John. I wonder, how many times do you think Zechariah prayed that prayer that they would have children? And here, on this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, right, on the chance that his straw gets drawn, of course, we didn't believe in chance. We believe that God is orchestrating these things. God here delivers through this angel the message that Zechariah will, in his old age, be a dad for the first time. And as if that weren't miraculous enough, if that weren't special enough, he says this, You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, because he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So not only do Zechariah and Elizabeth have their child, but this boy will be something special. He will be set apart. That's all that word about wine and strong drink. He's He'll undergo a special vow. He will have the Holy Spirit from birth because he has a special mission to go before the Lord and prepare the people. We're going to talk more about what that means when we get to Zechariah's song. But this will not be any ordinary boy. This will not be any ordinary man. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? Or how can I be sure? Now, if you're, of the, uh, if you're of the cynical, skeptical sort, if you've endured a lot of disappointment in your life, then you know exactly where Zechariah is coming from. Right? This is what modern psychology would call a defense mechanism, where, who knows, after so many decades of being disappointed, had Zechariah's heart hardened just a little bit. I mean... He'd been asking, they'd been asking for a child for a long time. And here it is that they get the news, but Zechariah just can't quite believe it. He can't quite trust what this angel is saying. And so he says, how can I be sure? I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. By the way, that's our word for gospel. This is gospel that the angel is speaking to Zechariah. And behold, 
you will be silent. So the angel says, okay, Zechariah, you want a sign. Here's your sign. Since you did not believe the word that I spoke to you, you will be unable to speak until it happens. You will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now, that maybe sounds a little bit unfair, right? The the discipline of the Lord often looks that way to us. But I want you to notice that the the undercurrent of grace there. Zechariah, the, the promise of a son is not revoked simply because of Zechariah's doubt. This will still be fulfilled. This will still happen. But Zechariah will be silent for the next nine months. He will be unable to speak for the next nine months. And so Elizabeth conceives, this old woman conceives. And we skip over to verse 57 of Luke chapter 1. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth. And she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. And they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he should be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father. So apparently not only could John not speak, he also couldn't hear. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. Now, if you were silent for nine months, if you could not speak for almost a year, what would you say? What would... What would be the first words out of your mouth? Presumably from reading this, John also, I mean, uh, Zechariah also couldn't hear. So the last words, the last conversation he had with a person was with this angel. So no doubt he's rehearsed in his mind that moment several times, right? He's had a lot of time to think in the silence inside of his own head. What would you say after that much silence? Here is how Zechariah breaks the silence, and this is where we'll spend most of our time today. This is verse 67. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise will visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way 
of peace. That's what Zechariah says. That's Zechariah's song. It actually, in the Greek, is in it's two long sentences. The first sentence is addressed to God. It's a blessing to God. And then the second sentence is actually a blessing for John, right? It was common uh, in that day that when your son was, or child was, well, your son, only your son could be circumcised, obviously. But when a child was brought into the covenant and you named them, that you would also speak a blessing over them. And that's what Zechariah does in the second part of his song. So we're going to look at it in those two halves. The first one, we're going to call the Lord remembers. And that's actually what Zechariah's name means. Zechariah's name means the Lord remembers. And in the second half of the song, we're going to call the Lord is gracious. Because that's what John's name means. John's name means the Lord is gracious. So, first, the Lord remembers. It's common maybe to hear Christians say God is faithful. But what do we mean when we say that? Or when we say that a person is faithful? Usually we mean trustworthy, right? We mean that they keep their word. And that's exactly the theme of Zechariah's song here. God has kept his word. God has remembered his promise and now he's executed it. He has now done it. And so as Zechariah has, uh, has had a long time to mold this over and to replay Gabriel's words in his head, to watch his elderly wife's belly grow, the very first words that come out of his mouth are, blessed is the Lord God of Israel. To bless somebody is to speak well of them, to adore them. And so what Zechariah says, the very first words he speaks are, praise be to God. Why? Why does Zechariah speak well? Why does he bless God? Because he has visited and redeemed his people. If you've been with us for the Exodus series, this is Exodus language here. Right. God tells Moses he is going to visit his people. God tells Moses he is going to redeem his people. That word to visit doesn't mean dropping by to say, hey, visit here means to look after, to care for like like you and I might do for someone who's sick or someone who's not able to get out of their home. The way we might check on a friend who doesn't have anyone else to check on them. That's what it means to visit. The Lord has visited. And when the Lord has visited, he has redeemed. So, so the picture here is that God goes in to rescue. He goes in to get his people and he brings them out of their bondage. That's what it means to redeem, to purchase someone who is enslaved, to make them, to, to pay the price for them. The Lord has visited and redeemed his people. Now you need to know that Zechariah and his friends have been waiting a long time for this. To be exact, they've been waiting about 400 years. God has not spoken at this point in the story, this point in the Bible. God has not spoken since the prophet Malachi 400 years before this. 400 years of silence. 400 years of waiting. And I, don't, and I imagine, like, so four, 400 years, that's... That's a little over four generations, maybe five generations. Can you, can you remember the people five generations back from you? Do you even know their names? Do you remember being alive at the same time that they were? That's how distant a memory 
God's last words were. And if he's anything like us, I imagine some doubt has crept in. Has God forgotten us? I mean, after all, he did make promises. He said he still loved us through the prophets. He told us he was going to send us a king like David. Told us he was going to bring us back. Told us that we would be his. Has God forgotten his promises? Has he forgotten what he said? No doubt that's what many thought during that 400 year period. And so when Zechariah jumps out of his heart exclaiming this, it's because it's been so long. It's been so long since anyone has heard from the Lord. So Zechariah praises God for doing exactly what God had said he would do over 400 years before this. He has visited and redeemed, and he has done so, Zechariah says, by raising up a horn of salvation. When you hear that, I want you to think about a bull or a ram or a rhinoceros. What is the, what is the horn, right? It's the animal's strength. It's power. Some might say it's beauty. It's its weapon. It's defense. It's what God's people who have been under Roman oppression have been waiting for. They've been waiting for this horn of salvation, for someone to come along. And that's what God has done. He's raised up a horn in David's house. Now, Zechariah is from the house of Levi, from the house of Aaron. So he's not talking about his own son here. He's talking about the Messiah who is to come. Now, if you remember from last week, Zechariah and Elizabeth had about three months to spend with Mary. Mary is about Mary is about three months along at this point in the story, and she had come and visited them for a time, and then she left. And so, no doubt, uh, they had talked with Mary at length about what the angel had said to her about the baby growing in her womb. And Zechariah talks about it like it's already happened. He has visited and redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn. This little, this little three-month-old baby in Mary's womb is the horn of salvation for us. He's coming to rescue us. Just as he spoke through the prophets of old. Just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. I want you to notice, it's interesting that he says through the... By the mouth, singular, of the prophets, plural. All of those prophets, the written prophets that we have in the Bible, and the non-writing prophets like Elijah and Elisha, all of those prophets, as different as they were, they spoke with one mouth. They were God's mouthpiece. That's what the word prophet means, a mouthpiece. They were God's mouthpiece, and they spoke one message, and it was about a Redeemer who was to come. And so, God remembers what He has said, and he, he remembers His holy covenant. Why has God done this? Why has He raised up a horn? Because He promised to do it, not just to the prophets, but to a man named Abraham a thousand or so years before that. Just a couple of verses. And if you don't know the story of Abraham, just a couple of verses I want to read for you and of God's interaction with Abraham. The first time the Lord meets Abraham, here's what he says to him. It's in Genesis 12. It's the very, the very beginning of the Bible. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. 
And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. That's the promise made to Abraham, and it just grows from there. Genesis 17, 7, God says this to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your children after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your children after you. So God promises Abraham that he will be his God. Now, that maybe doesn't sound all that strange to us unless you think about what it was like in Abraham's day. Right? In Abraham's day, you had, right, every culture, every group, people group had their own gods, had their own idols, and you worshiped whomever you wanted. Right? In fact, if you move territories, it's highly likely that you would change gods. Right? Or that you would keep your old gods and pick up new ones. Right? That was not all that uncommon to do. Right? When you moved into a new place, or if you had to move to a new country or whatever, like, oh man, the Egyptian gods are awful nice, I'll use them too. Right? And you can still see this at work in various parts of the world. People would have their household gods, they would have their cultural gods, etc. And so, it's interesting that when God speaks to Abraham, he says, I will be your God. I'm it. I'm the only one. I will be your God, and you will be my people. This is a, this is a two-way relationship, and there are no others to come into it. This is my promise to you. I will be your God and your children's God and your grandchildren's God and your great-grandchildren's God, right? This is the long-term promise that that God makes to Abraham. And then he says this in Genesis 22. He says, by myself I have sworn. You remember when you were in elementary school and you would like, you know, like you're playing with your friends on the playground and, and it's like somebody tells you something that you can hardly believe and they would say like, man, I swear. I swear on my mother's grave. I, I, I don't even know what that means, right? But, right? Because we're so unreliable, we have to, like, swear on something greater than ourselves. And so, right, we, we usually pick, uh, like, I swear on all my Ken Griffey Jr. baseball cards that I am telling you the truth, right? Uh, that's, what, that's what we do because we have to swear on something, right? When I got my first apartment in, uh, in college, Right? Somebody else had to sign the lease with me because no property owner was going to look at 19-year-old Kevin Corley's net worth and say, yeah, man, he's got it covered. Right? Like if he trashes the apartment, we're good. We're good. He can cover it. Right? No, my parents had to, had to be the guarantor. Right? They had to sign along with me so that if I trashed the place, they would, they would have to pick up the bill. In case you're curious, I didn't. All right? So... We usually have to, we have to swear, we have to make an oath by something outside of ourselves. God doesn't have to do that. He says, I swear by myself. Because what could God point to, right? Like, He's created everything. So, so nothing is bigger or more powerful than Him. There's nothing that stands outside of Him that can back up His promise. He's it. So He tells Abraham, I swear by myself, this is in Genesis 22, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. This was God's promise to Abraham to be with his children forever. So when Zechariah stares at the infant child in his arms, he says, this is it. God is remembering the promise that he made to Abraham thousands of years before this moment. He is making good on his oath. 
Why? For what purpose? Why does God keep His Word to show mercy? He says, Zechariah says, so that we, having been delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness all our days. We looked at at this in Exodus, right? When God saves, when God purchases a people, He sets them aside for Himself. He purchases people for His own possession. We are saved to serve Him. To use the adoption metaphor, right? We are adopted into the family and we are made more and more like the Father who adopted us. We do not reflect the, the values of our slavery. We reflect the values of our new family. And that's what God has saved us for. All right. Kevin, that's a great history lesson. What in the world does that have to do with me? Right? I get it. Maybe that was really special to Zechariah. But what does that have to do with us? As we stand between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, right? Between the first advent and the second advent. God remembers. Means God is faithful to keep His promises. And what that means for us is that God is bent on saving His people. He is determined to finish the job. And one of the things that that means in conjunction with that is that salvation comes from God, not from us. And God is determined to finish the job. He has literally moved heaven and earth to rescue His people. That's how much He loves you. God has literally moved heaven and earth to rescue the people that He loves. And we can find great comfort in that. That's That's a word for the anxious. That's a word for the fearful. We have a God who remembers His promises. He remembers His people. He does not forget. Now, as Peter says, he reminds... The the, the people that Peter writes to at the end of the New Testament were a little bit worried that Jesus wasn't coming back. Why was this taking so long for Jesus to come back? And what Peter says is God is not slow as come as some count slowness. We get a little bit worked up. God is not slow as some count slowness. He is right on time. I love the line from the Lord of the Rings uh, when Gandalf, when Frodo tells Gandalf he's late. And Gandalf says, Frodo Baggins, a wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. This is the moment, right? God knows exactly the time and He aims to do His work in exactly the time He has set. We can rest in that. We don't have to get worked up about that. William Cooper, a man who suffered mightily from depression and would eventually lose his life because of it, put it this way in a song. He said, Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, He fashions up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Trust not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. God 
remembers. It's the first part of the song. God remembers. He's faithful. He keeps His promises. God is also gracious. That's what John's name means. Having blessed God for His promise-keeping work, Zechariah now turns his eyes on his son to bless him. And it's as if he's saying, My boy, here's the part you will play in this grand work. Here's how you fit into God's grand scheme of mercy. You will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will be God's mouthpiece. To do what? To go before the Lord to prepare His ways. John will be the forerunner. Forerunner. It means he runs before. I remember uh, Alistair Begg is a pastor, a Scottish pastor. He actually preaches in Ohio, which seems a little ironic, but because I can't even say Ohio in a Scottish accent. But Begg tells a story about when the uh, when trains were first being used in Great Britain. They they actually employed a man to run in front of the train waving flags to tell people to get off the tracks. He was the forerunner, right? Of course, the irony of that is a train isn't exactly small or quiet. So if you needed a guy with a flag to tell you that a train was coming, you may want to check something else, right? But that's, that's John. John is the man who will run down the tracks in front of this train called Jesus, in front of this coming king, and his job is to get people ready. His job is to say, here comes the king. He is the the herald, to use an old world term. John is the forerunner. What will his message be? Verse 77, he will give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. What would you say our society needs most? What would you say, what would you say people need most? And how you answer that question, our greatest need, depends on what you, what you think people are lacking or what you think society is lacking. Right? Uh, whatever you perceive us to be missing, that is what you will think we need more of. So, how you answer the greatest need question reflects what you think our deepest, deepest problems are. And in Zechariah's day, I imagine most people you would poll on the street, would have, they, they would have said that their greatest problems were political. That if, that if Rome was gone, things would be better. If... If the king, if the, if the Davidic king, this king that had been promised from David's line, would get there and would kick out the Romans, right? If God would raise up that horn and use it to gore the Egyptians and push them out of the land and make Israel great again, everything would be wonderful. That's what people would have said their greatest need was in Zechariah's day. What about you? What would you say our greatest need is? What are we lacking? Zechariah almost sounds like his contemporaries, right? If you read him there at the first part of the song when he talks about being saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, um, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, verse 74, it almost sounds as if Zechariah would agree. Our greatest need is that 
is that the Romans are gone. Our greatest need is a political or a societal need. But then we get to verse 77. And Zechariah says that our greatest need is not political. It's not societal. It's not financial. Our greatest need is spiritual. Our greatest problem, our greatest lack, our greatest, our greatest problem, what we have more than anything in abundance, is sin. And because we have sin, we have a broken relationship with God. And so what people need more than anything, more than they need a new leader, more than they need a new financial planner, more than they need a new house or a new truck, what people need more than anything is a restored relationship with God. And the only way that that comes is through the forgiveness of sins, which is exactly what John has come to preach and is exactly what Jesus has come to offer. John's message will be one of forgiveness, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of sins because of what? Because of God's tender mercy. That's how the text reads. It actually reads because of God's heart of mercy. God has caused the sun to rise and give us light. Zechariah borrows an image, an image from Malachi, the Old Testament prophet. He says, this is what Malachi says. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You will go out leaping like calves from the stall. Zechariah picks up on that image when he says that, that the sunrise is coming. And that the light will shine on those who sit in darkness, in the shadow of death. In the ancient world, when the sun went down and there were clouds in the sky and you didn't have any candles or lanterns, you basically just sat still. You couldn't go anywhere, right? In fact, to go anywhere, especially like if you were in the woods or in the wilderness, meant that you were in danger. You didn't know what animal could be lurking on the other side of that rock or that tree. So you just sat there in the shadow of death waiting. But then the sun breaks. Then the sun breaks and you have light. And Zechariah says that the sunrise is coming. And he pictures people as trapped in darkness, waiting for death to come. But then the sun breaks the horizon to give light and to guide people out of the darkness, out of death, into peace. That's what Jesus has come to do. The sun has risen in Jesus to forgive our sins and to beckon us out of the cave, to beckon us out of the darkness and into the light, to guide our feet away from death into peace, peace with God and peace with each other. That's why Zechariah rejoices. This old man, as he holds his little baby in his hands, he sees in his son that God is up to something, that God has broken in to save the world, to forgive sin and open up the way back to God. That's what Christmas is all about. Do you believe it? Let's pray. 
Lord in heaven, we thank you for this word, and we thank you for our time in it, and we pray, God, that you would bless it to our understanding. Lord, whatever has come from me, I pray that it would be forgotten. Lord, but that whatever has come from you would take deep root in our hearts, that we would be people like Zechariah who are overjoyed, Lord, that you remember your promise and are overjoyed that you are gracious, that you do not treat us as our sins deserve, but that you give us new life. Those who have been consigned and trapped in death, you have said, come out of the darkness and into the light and have new life. We rejoice in this because of your great mercy. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we move into a time of giving, um, you may know that uh, for every dollar you give, we aim to give 10% to missionaries uh, both locally and around the world. One of those missionaries is Third Millennium Ministries. They are a ministry that aims to give uh, seminary education uh, to pastors in places where, where graduate education is unaffordable. Right? Their, their tagline is for the seminary education for the world for free. So we're going to watch a short video about them just so you know what it is that we give to and thereby what, what it is that you are giving to when you give. time I was in a country and I was there to lead a big church planting conference of about 300 people or so and I was introduced to the elder of the Christian church there. It was just a little block house that he lived in, a one-room house. We talked for a while with the translator but eventually after a few minutes his daughter came out. She was nine years old, beautiful little girl and about the age of my granddaughter, my oldest granddaughter at the time. But when she came out, she came out walking on the heels of her hands like this because her legs were twisted up under her body, just gnarled up under her body. And as we left, the pastor of this church looked at me and he said, we can fix her legs. And when I reached in my pocket, he said, no, 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 I don't want your money. We can have her legs fixed for free in the next town at the hospital. And I said, then what's the problem? He said, well, the Lord has told her father and me that her family is under a curse. And the only way to get the curse off of her family is for her to spend her life like this. That was her pastor saying this. That is the kind of suffering that followers of Jesus face all over the world because their pastors have never been taught the Bible. And at third millennium, we're going to change that. The vision that third millennium has is this. Rather than strategically choosing this little place and that little place and this little place and that little place, instead what we want to do is create a curriculum that can be distributed everywhere so that everybody can get it in their own land, in their own language, biblical education, for the world, for free. It's very simple for us. We want to teach what the Bible teaches. We decided we're going to create what we call edutainment. It's educational and it's entertaining. Not just the words of scripture and the concepts of the theology as well. We've got to take seminary, we've got to put it in a box, and we've got to send it to them. Third Mill exists 
because we believe that every Christian deserves a well-trained pastor. There is a shortage of cash. If they have the resources, a lot of these pastors and church leaders still can't afford to go to seminary or to get advanced training in the Bible and theology. I saw them having to leave their homes, their children, their families, their churches, and heard what happened to a lot of those families while they were gone. And I know that through third millennium, that doesn't have to happen anymore. If we want to reach every pastor, every Christian leader around the world, our curriculum has to be available at every level of technology. So if you're in a place like Southern Sudan and all you have is paper, then we have our manuscripts. And the next level up would be audio, MP3. It would be downloadable. It would be streaming on the web. Above that, we have video streaming on the web. We have it downloadable on the web. We have it in medium definition. We have it in high definition, depending on how good your internet access is. The technology kept shrinking and shrinking and shrinking, so that now we can put two years of seminary, full videos of seminary, along with books, along with exams, along with all kinds of things, on a micro SD card that's about the size of my thumbnail. Biblical education for the world for free. And the free part is a very important part of our ethic. We want to make this as easy as possible to put into as many languages as we can to reach the most people that we can. It's just amazing how God has brought a concert of people and ideas and beliefs together so that every single church leader in the world can now have sound theological and biblical teaching.